Welcome to Brain and Vets. Today we are joined by Oliver Traldi, who is a doctoral student at the University of Notre Dame. And we are going to be talking about social epistemology today. Oliver, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah. So imagine uh, you're a defendant in a trial and it, it looks really bad. The evidence is against you and the jury, they're looking at you like they hate you. But your lawyer says to you, I've got a foolproof strategy. Your lawyer says, I'm going to schedule you on the docket for right after lunch. I'm just going to schedule it so the judge decides your case right after lunch. I said jury before, maybe there's no jury, maybe there's just a judge. But the judge is going to decide your case right after lunch, and that's going to give you uh, the best chance that we can have. Now, as the defendant, you might hear this and just think it's pretty unlikely. Your lawyer, though, could tell you that it's based on the result of a famous psychological study, which has been printed in textbooks. So the question is, what should you as the defendant believe, should you believe that you're going to have a pretty good chance based on this study and this, this technique employed by your lawyer, or should you stick with your old belief and think that the judge is going to rule against you based on how, how the trial has seemed to go? Oliver, I'm curious, given that the study was cited many times, I'm assuming that there was at some point backlash against the study and it was investigated. So I'm assuming that it isn't the case that just because your case is heard just after lunch it is more likely to come out favorable to you. I wouldn't necessarily call it a backlash. I don't know much about the history of this study itself. What there was during what's called the replication crisis in science, the consequences and reactions to it have been going on for over a decade now, in, especially in the social sciences, but to an extent also in the hard sciences. This was a study where people looked at it and just said, so Daniel Lakins, who's active in the open science movement and in trying to get greater awareness of statistical methods within psychology, he's a psychologist with a blog uh, and a very active Twitter presence. He wrote a blog post called Impossibly Hungry Judges. So what he says is simply, you shouldn't believe this study because it's impossible. And it's a funny thing to hear, right? Because you might not have thought it was impossible the first time you heard it. You might've thought that's an interesting finding. The, the way the study looks is it has a graph with the likelihood of a favorable decision. Now, it's not clear to me just looking at this graph what it means by a favorable decision, but it says the likelihood of a favorable decision kind of starts around 65%, then drops to 0% right before lunch. And then right after lunch, it pops right back up to 65%. Now, why does Lakin say it's impossible? Well, he says there's simply no effects this large in psychology. And if there were an effect like this, kind of intuitively, humans interacting with other humans probably have a good idea of it. We would have idioms about it or little pieces of advice, aphorisms. You might say, date before lunch, you'll get a punch. Date after lunch, you'll get a bunch of flowers or something. Who knows? But well, you, would, you might have little ways of referring to this fact about lunch and its central importance in human psychology. So I take one of the lessons of the reaction to this to be, you kind of never get away from having to use your critical thinking. No matter how much expertise is deployed, no matter how many results there are, you still have to think about how were those results produced, where are they coming from, and just whether they seem prima facie likely to you based on your experience of the world. And one of the things we do in epistemology and the philosophy of science is we think about confirm those things and, and how do we check one source of evidence against another. You mentioned the replication crisis, which is this idea that there are a bunch of very famous studies that have been done. And the idea to see if a study 
works is to try and replicate it. So we know that there are certain things you can do in the sciences that any person with the right lab equipment can replicate that and they can show that the theory is correct. And it, I think a couple of years ago, people tried to replicate the, the top 100 papers in the journal Nature, and they could only replicate 15 of them. And this sent shivers up. Is this in social psychology in particular or, or some subfield of psychology or psychology in general? From what I understand, it's, as you said, is not just in the social sciences, although some of the social sciences cases are particularly egregious, but it seems to be in the hard sciences too, mm -hmm. that there are just certain kinds of claims that are made that when someone tries to do it, to replicate the experiment, they can't. And so there are certain kinds of things that people think they know uh, because it's been published in a fancy journal and has been replicated in textbooks for a long time, but cannot be replicated in real life. One of the infamous ones, and it's been debated back and forth quite a bit, is the, the Mulgram prison experiment. So in that case, what infamously happened were the researcher got together a group of students and he divided them into prisoners and prison guards. And he said, I'm going to put you in this little mock prison. I think it was, could be wrong, Stanford. And he sort of said, let's see what happens. And after five days, the experiment was called off because the prison guards were treating the prison students so badly that they felt it would no longer be ethical to keep the experiment running. And so the idea was people have a deep evil inside of them. And if you give them license, even in the form of we're just running this game and here's a stick or here's a title, people will abuse their power. This created this whole cottage industry. But no one could replicate it. And partly no one could replicate it because it said you're not allowed to replicate it because the results could be so sinister. And then what started to happen was that people who took part in the experiment said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I did go and rattle that cage, but because I was a budding theater student and I kind of felt like that's what the researcher wanted from me was to do that, was to perform an outcome. And I definitely wouldn't have done it otherwise. And it turned out that there weren't wide scale abuses. There was really this one guy. And so the question is when we're presented with these studies, which are part of the popular imagination, and it turns out they can't be replicated. Do we toss out the discipline in its entirety? Do we say psychologists not to be trusted? These people are fake experts. How do we know what to hold on to and what to disregard? Yeah. So one thing that I should mention is that there's actually been, um, it's not exactly a replication crisis of the replication crisis, but there's been a backlash to, just as we say, we should doubt these large effect sizes and these crazy results, and we should check them and see if they replicate. There's also people who say, well, we should be careful about inferring too much from a failed replication. Just like the original study, the failed replication is just one study. And there's various things that it may mean. Some of the replications are imperfect. Some of them are missing elements of the original studies. And at other times, a real effect can fail to replicate just based on kind of bad luck. So it's important to not infer too much about any particular case based on one failed replication. Often you need a slew of failed replications and you need to make sure they're the right kind of failed replications. But yeah, I think the Stanford prison ex experiment is a, a great example of something where the lesson is supposed to be, here's this amazing fact about human nature that if you just give people a stick, they'll start hitting people with it. And you do want to think kind of in the back of your head, well, is that what I would do? Is that what the people around me would, do we really treat each other that badly? And uh, this experiment is often used as evidence that we treat each other about that badly. And it, some people use it as a, an explanation of why is there still wide scale oppression based on this or that demographic characteristic. But if the study itself 
doesn't accurately represent the way that people would interact. It's, it's no support for that conclusion at all. And it's bad explanation of why that would happen. Yeah. So I don't think it's the case that uh, you use the phrase fake experts. I don't think it's the case that psychologists are fake experts, but there's, so Daniel Lakins had to be an expert to explain why this study wouldn't occur, why this study should not be believed kind of on the face of it. He had to say, as a psychologist, I almost never see effect sizes like this. They're really rare. And so we know you have to be an expert already to be super skeptical of this study in particular, to know that this is not the sort of thing you're used to seeing. And when people looked and said, well, what is the real cause? You had to know a little bit about the fact that trials might not be scheduled in a random manner and how that would influence the study and the statistics of it. You had to have a little bit of expertise to come up with a good response and explain why the study might've gotten these results. It's not as though it was a fabricated study. In the replication crisis, there were studies that were found to have been fabricated. And you're saying to an extent the the Stanford prison experiment might be one of them because maybe some of the participants were urged in a certain way or, or got the impression that they were supposed to be doing something. But it's not as though this hungry judges study was fabricated. It just appears that the data analysis was somewhat off and a variable that was not random was taken to be random. So to an extent, you have to be an expert to understand where the experts went wrong. And that's an interesting kind of fact to me. There's another way that you can be an expert without necessarily being good. So there's always a question of an expert on what? So obviously a psychologist, we're not going to doubt the expertise of a psychologist when it comes to which sorts of things are taught in psychology classes, which sorts of things are published in psychology journals. What were some of the hottest psychology articles last year and the year before? Any psychologist we're going to trust more than ourselves or anybody else on these topics. The question is, how did that translate into the sorts of propositions for our own belief systems and for our own lives that we, we want to draw on their expertise for. And one of the interesting things about the use of expertise in politics is that it seems once an expert's belief becomes useful in politics, it almost is sort of less trustworthy to the extent that it's politically salient. So a lot of these studies, both of the studies that we were talking about play into a certain kind of narrative about human nature and human rationality that to my mind was dominant until very recently. This is a narrative that comes to, in my view, out of a combination of kind of the politics of social justice, worries about implicit bias, worries about people not understanding their privilege and things like that, that combined with what was kind of one of the main research programs in psychology in the early 2000s, the heuristics and biases research program, which is popularized by Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow and, and other books like that. These come together in some of the, in some of the psychology research that failed to replicate. So one that Stuart Ritchie mentions in his book, Science Fictions, is a study that seemed to show that when there was more litter more trash on the streets of a city, people were more racist. And if somebody tells you that this is true, it's easy to kind of come up with a sort of rationalization of what the mechanism for it might've been. You might think, well, people see the trash, they have a kind of module in their heads for thinking about dirt and foreign substances and things like that. And the trash kinds of primes them to think about foreigners as being bad. You can come up with this whole story to justify it, but turns out, as far as I remember, 
this study simply failed to replicate. I don't remember if there was some malfeasance in creating the study, but it's just not a study that we should trust. So a smart person can always come up with a story to explain why these things would have happened. But there's some work that we have to do to figure out were these big results, did they even happen to begin with? And I'm excited about the shape of the intellectual landscape because there's, I think, going to be somewhat of a return to the view, maybe people are more rational than we thought they were. Maybe people really are assessing the evidence in the best way that they can more than we think they are. And maybe we aren't subject to these weird priming effects, to these huge effect sizes from kind of unrelated things. Something I'm very curious about is there's this rise in an antagonism towards science and scientists, mm -hmm. very much because of COVID. So scientists got certain things, World Health Organization released statements early on saying that COVID is transmitted through um, touch, through fo fomites. Later, it turns out that's not the case. It's transmitted through the air. And there were a number of these uh, retractions. And the view was then by many lay people, but hold on, the scientists got it wrong. Science must always get it right. And so science mm. is irrevocably problematic and we must trust nothing that comes out of scientists' mouths. And then in addition to that, aligning scientists with the left and saying, well, we're anti-left, so we must be anti-science. And that seems to be an ironclad position these days. You can't really chip away at it. Um, along with that is a deep skepticism towards experts and expertise. But it seems to me like there's a number of logical leaps there. Yeah. First logical leap is this idea that science must always get it right immediately. And that's just not the case historically. Scientists postulate hypotheses, which they then test. At any given time, there's often a reigning hypothesis, which most scientists accept. And later, they change their minds and reject that hypothesis. And you get these paradigm shifts within science where whole theories are thrown out. Um, but that doesn't mean the science is useless. And another problem is aligning science with a particular political orientation. It's just not the case that every scientist is a leftist. The other issue with all of this, of course, is that when people say we don't trust the experts, they seem to trust something else. So it's not just an absence of trust in, for example, vaccines or World Health Organization recommendations around masks. They then latch onto something else like ivermectin. The evidence for ivermectin is far less impressive than the evidence for a vaccine, but that's good enough. They'll trust that. And I, I find that fascinating. So it's not just that experts are no good. It's that experts belonging to this tradition are no good and will trust local WhatsApp or iMessenger group instead. They're experts and they're the kind of experts that I can trust. So it seems like there's different classes of experts in people's minds and they trust some and not others. Yeah. So... There's so much to, to talk about in what you just said. Um, and basically, I think all of it is correct. And there's just a few places where I'm going to maybe add my own take a little bit. So first of all, and maybe I should have said this right when we started talking about experts, there's a distinction between two types of experts. So epistemologists are often worried about what you might call epistemic authorities, the people who really know. There are puzzles in epistemology about 
You say you know that somebody really knows. Why should you just take their word for it? Some people worry about we reduce our intellectual autonomy that way. Some people worry about what exactly is the scope of their really knowing and things like that. Some people think you don't form justified beliefs to the same extent. You don't deserve credit for your beliefs if you just listen to somebody else in the same way that you would if you've evaluated the evidence for yourself. But that's already taking it for granted that, that somebody is an epistemic authority. There's also social authorities people who have the degrees, people who are on TV and things like that. And I do think that anybody who said the social authorities are never the epistemic authorities is making a huge mistake. And I also think probably a smaller mistake, but somebody who thinks the social authorities always are the epistemic authorities is also making a mistake. Now, a common point made in all of social epistemology is that we can't get away from it. We can't live our lives in the modern world. If something's going wrong with my plumbing in my house, Maybe I trust my plumber, or maybe I trust an internet site that I Google, but I have to trust somebody. I'm not going to be figuring it out myself. If I have a weird pain in my arm, which as I get older, seems like I always have a weird pain in my arm. That's just life. But if I have a weird pain in my arm, either I trust my doctor or I trust WebMD, but I'm trusting somebody. I'm not reinventing the entire history of medicine and trying to figure out what's going on with my arm. So. It's definitely the case that, what is it, the Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody, you got to trust somebody, right? That's just the way that our world works. You have to be listening to sources. You have to be forming your beliefs somehow. So it's definitely true that a lot of the people who say, okay, we're not going to trust the official sources again, they just replace that with another uncritical kind of trust. And my only contribution to this discourse is usually meant to be something like, well, if the best that the educated class can say is my uncritical source of trust is better than your uncritical source of trust, then maybe that's not so good. Maybe that's not so much better. Now, we also have to think about what is it that people are trusting things for? So you said, it doesn't mean that science is useless. Science improves and science throws away bad hypotheses and it comes up with new ones. But there may be a distinction in whether we're thinking from the perspective of the philosophy of science or from the perspective of epistemology here, right? From the perspective of epistemology, one of the reasons that we want to form justified beliefs is that so we can take rational action to pursue our goals and interests. So if it's January 2020 and I see, oh, people are just flopping over on the streets of China and Iran and a bunch of people in the Iranian parliament are getting COVID and things like that. And I remember SARS and I just think about the way people get diseases and the way breathing works. Um, and I see Dr. Fauci or whoever saying masks don't work. Don't worry about masks. I might think, well, I do know that science will come up with the right answer about this soon. I do know that there's going to be a process, but I need to think about what to do now. And I need to think about, so really forming the right kind of belief about these things requires things that may tax certain people's resources of time and also kind of a mental acuity and information. So one thing you might just think about is what was the process like that led to this in the literature on conspiracy theories, this, this term official story. So what was the process that led to the official story? Was it a process that was long enough that had enough kind of different sorts of people contributing to it that had an openness? We want all these things in peer review processes and in other academic processes where there's an opportunity for change, where there's an opportunity for criticism. And when you think about, here's the official story, you want to think about what was the background process, ideally. One of the things that got me thinking about all this stuff was the 2016 election. The American election in 2016, very few people came up with the right prediction about it. 
And it seemed like within the Hillary Clinton campaign, where I had a lot of friends working, well, a few friends working, there was no real awareness of what the challenges actually were for them. And when you started to hear stories about that campaign, you started to think maybe this lack of awareness had something to do with the internal structure, with who was allowed to criticize who and with how dissent was dealt with and how differing views were dealt with. You started to hear maybe there were ways in which there were people kind of in the middle who didn't let things go up the flagpole. You have to let things go up the flagpole. Otherwise, you're not making use of the many minds in an organization, right? One reason why processes do better than individuals, because usually they have a lot of people contributing to them, but you have to have a lot of people in the right sort of structure. You have to actually be using everybody's mind in that structure. Otherwise it's just top down and it's still basically, it's as though there's just one individual that is forming the official story. Now within COVID, I completely agree with you. I I'm pro vaccine. I got vaccinated as soon as I could, but there are ways in which in terms of gaining people's trust, the public health establishment stepped on their own feet a little bit. So first of all, at least in the U S we had a kind of noble lie about masks, right? Because there weren't enough of the really heavy duty masks at the beginning, the official story was masks don't work. And then later they said, we were just telling you that because we wanted to save the masks for the first line medical professionals, doctors and nurses and other people at hospitals. Well, it turns out, even if you lied for a good reason or what you think is a good reason, when you lie to people, they stop trusting you as much. And nobody is going to say, well, I'll just believe them that masks don't work because if I die instead of a nurse, it'll be for the greater good. Nobody wants to be the one who dies, even if it's for the greater good. You have to be a really good person to prefer your own death to the death of even many other people. We're very self-interested about life and death. So that was one mistake. And another mistake, and this is one that I wrote a little bit about the at the time, was that there was a sort of difference in treatment of things like mass gathering. And we had this especially last summer where you had people taking pictures of people eating outside and saying, this disgusts me. And then they would take pictures of the mass protests around the death of George Floyd, where there were thousands and thousands of people in close quarters and say, this is such a good thing. And when you ask public health people about this difference, what they said was, well, racism is also a public health issue. And to me, that's like a joke, right? That's like a bad joke when it comes to, are we actually trusting this organization to tell us what we should and shouldn't be doing when it comes to protection from COVID? But you were saying it's a word that the public health establishment is being kind of labeled as left-wing, but it, it was a kind of straightforwardly left-wing response. So you point out a couple of things. The first is we have to have specialization when it comes to knowledge production, that I can't be a part-time engineer slash physicist slash biologist slash philosopher. There's only so much that you can know and only so much you can research. And it's quite important that you have people who can do that in depth, can spend enormous amount of their time finding out what's true in their subdiscipline, and that you can then trust them. And you also then point out there's some kind of meta system that you want in place. It's not just about saying, well, this guy seems really smart, he's got a high IQ, or he went to Yale. Mm -hmm. Let's say, given the, the way that knowledge develops, is it's not just one great mind, it's a collective of people who are doing it. So is the system a system that can be trusted? 
And we can think about systems that um, operated in a corrupt fashion. So if you think about science in Nazi Germany or science under the Soviet regime, they had improper ways of weighing up evidence. So for example, let's say, well, this whole body of research was produced by Jews, therefore it must be chucked out, it cannot be trusted. Or this is a bourgeois science uh, and it cannot be trusted. And this is the kind of thing that Lenin would have believed in, so we must trust it. What we see at the moment is that, well, one of the best ways to find out what's true is to have an open environment where people can come up with an idea and others are free to interrogate the idea. And you can do so in a way where you say, we're both involved in this collective endeavor to find out what's true. And we're not going to take massive offense because someone is saying, you might be wrong, or what about this? What about that? We're going to be humble in our approach to knowledge. And the academy for a long time was the place for this. We, you could say things that were very outlandish. If you're Einstein and you say, look, I don't think Newtonian physics works. And you could say things like maybe particles are both waves and not waves simultaneously. Like it's a crazy idea, but it turns out that maybe you're right. And you can develop these new things that push the realm of human knowledge because people weren't afraid to speak these sort of dangerous ideas. But now we have a different situation. Now, without a doubt, it is the case that at universities, there are certain things, if you say them, you are asking to be publicly shamed, you're asking to be fired. And as you point out that you have this politicization around certain kinds of scientific positions. So for example, it'll be a Democrat position that you ought to wear a mask, and it's a Republican position not to wear a mask. Once we've gone down that route, once it becomes about supporting your team and not about trying to find out what's efficacious, we've destroyed the system. And then it becomes very difficult to trust the expert. So the system works because we can say, I, I can trust this expert because the incentives are correct. If the incentives are not correct, then maybe it's difficult to trust. An example of how this plays out practically in my environment, you know, I work as a lawyer, is we have a particular model for how experts are appointed, which is different from how it works in England. The way it works here, so for example, let's say you've got a personal injury case, you've got someone who's in a car accident, and they've suffered certain uh, traumas, brain injury, orthopedic injury. The plaintiff's going to appoint experts, and the defendant's going to appoint experts, and they assess the patient independently. And they produce reports, and then you duke it out in court. And you find that certain experts get a reputation for being defendant's experts. So they'll say, well, you know what, you're probably going to be fine, stick a bandaid on it, you'll, you'll be cool. And the other ones, plaintiff experts say, this guy's never going to work again, this is the most serious injury I've ever seen in my entire life. And so the worry is because if you build up a reputation as the kind of person who's going to either deflate damages or inflate damages, well, I have a reason to say this because I'm going to get employed by one team or the other, so let me brand myself in that way. And you're not disassociating yourself from the truth. The way it works in the UK is different. The court appoints the experts and they have a panel of people who say, you're a cardiologist, you're a neurosurgeon, and we are allocating you to this side or that side, go and assess the patient. And there you find your incentive is totally different. It's to be as close to the truth as possible so that the, the judge is likely to appoint me because they say, I can trust you, as opposed to you're the kind of person who's gonna get me the thing I want. So I, I suppose when we're trying to work out who do we trust? It seems like there's this prior question, which is the system operating correctly? If it's not, then maybe I can't trust anything that comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I, I do think that there's, um, I think people are right, or at least sort of reasonable or understandable to worry about open systems. As Jason was saying, you have an open system and maybe it means that a rational person can trust the system better if they're really thinking about it. But maybe it also means that some of the people who are less rational, maybe they end up 
trusting some charlatans. Maybe they end up taking the horse dewormer instead of the vaccine, or maybe they end up not wearing a mask because somebody said they shouldn't, or maybe they end up thinking COVID is just the flu or that COVID was made up by these people or that people in order to try to take over the world. So in an open system, you do get better incentives and you also get this chaos of ideas. And in the history of philosophy, there's been a lot of philosophers who, uh, Mill is obviously the best example, right? Of somebody who said, we want the chaos of ideas, just get it all out there. And then something good will happen. But as we were saying about science in general, we do have this question, what is the good thing that will happen? How quickly, what will be the cost? And in different areas, right? It seems like people are willing to tolerate different costs. So for example, th there are certain things that speakers get a uh, deplatformed for on college ca campuses these days. And one of the costs that's often cited is it's going to be really upsetting to some of our students. And that seems uh, like a high cost, but it's not necessarily a cost that is a cost to the epistemic robustness of the system of knowledge production. It's not a cost that is going to reduce the, the strength of the system or the trustworthiness of the system. So there are some cases where it seems like people are trading off these other goods against how open the system is, how trustworthy it is, how trustworthy it looks to an outsider. And of course, again, maybe it's rational, maybe it's irrational, but it's an element of the human psychology that maybe academia isn't an open system, but there are open systems, right? People get banned from Twitter, but then there's other websites. There's whisper networks. There's all these other things. There's podcasts. Somebody gets kicked off a college campus. Immediately, they write a, a blog post that says I was kicked off a college campus and it's much sexier. It makes their ideas look better. I often say, I wish I could get canceled. People say, oh, Oliver, you say these things, you write these things. You, don't you worry that you get canceled. I say, I wish I could get canceled. Then my life could really get going. I could start up one of these things where people just give me money. I wouldn't have to teach anymore. It would be crazy. So there's trade-offs that people make when they reduce or increase the openness of the system. And some of those trade-offs have to do with knowledge production and how robust it is and also how trustworthy appearing it is. Some of the things we've talked about are how trustworthy the system, system actually is. And some of them are about how trustworthy the system appears. Even within the appearance thing, we could make a distinction, right? We could say, how trustworthy will it appear to a rational person versus how much will even irrational people trust it given what we know to be common quirks of human psychology. But there are all these trade-offs to be made. And yeah, I do think that it's always dangerous when the people in charge of what's supposed to be a system of knowledge production say, well, we know the answer now. We're just going to deplatform or we're going to get rid of this view. There's a danger in terms of perhaps the view is right, but there's also the danger in terms of perhaps the view is attractive for other reasons. And now you have to think about how the whole rest of your knowledge production looks to the person who was attracted to that view. People who have no idea what goes on in most metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, ethics, right? People who have no idea about these things. They see somebody getting kicked out of a magazine editorial or kicked off of a panel or something like that for some view on the philosophy of gender. They think, wow, I just can't, I can't trust those philosophers. They're not willing to entertain dissent. So. It appears less trustworthy when it's less open, 
even if it's a very narrow range of issues, even if it's barely related to the mass of what the institution does. It seems to me like both you and Mark have touched on the core problem, which is emotion being ladled onto beliefs. And that emotion ladling is often because of some sort of political association. I I published my PhD seven years ago on why there are no groups. And a lot of people at the time said to me, that is just typical of philosophers to publish something that is totally useless, totally divorced from reality, has no bearing on our lives in any way. And there you go and sit for three or four years and in your armchair, think about whether they are groups or just individuals. And I often say to them, no, but there are practical applications and they go, yeah, right, there's practical applications. Now, fast forward five years and we're suddenly in a world where gender identity and racial identity are absolutely crucial to so many debates. People have incredibly strong emotional views on this. They have ironclad intuitions one way or another. There are trans men are men, trans men aren't men. Everyone has strong intuitions around this. Color blindness about race is racist or it's not racist. It's the right way to go. Everyone has strong views on this. Now, all of a sudden, when I say, well, there aren't social groups, implying that there aren't races and there aren't genders, well, then people say to me, how could you have written this? Oh my goodness, this has massive implications for our lives. And they're not the implications I like, so how very dare. Mm. So it seems like what we've done is we've taken debates, which were really intellectual debates, academic debates that could be had in the comfort of our armchairs without the threat of being cancelled or revered through cancellation. We could have those debates in an unemotional way. Then enter politics. And now through the polarization of two political positions, plus maybe libertarians in the middle, we have these incredibly weird movements of certain beliefs going over to one side or to the other side. And all this emotion gets lumped on top. And all of a sudden we've got this shitstorm, right? So in the past, the question about whether there's climate change or not was an academic question. But then it suddenly became a question of whether you left or right. Well, if you left, you believe in climate change. If you right, you don't. Now, the question when you ask any given person, well, is there climate change? They're first going to consult their political beliefs instead of consulting the studies. It seems like these emotions, which are tied to politics, have marred previously calm intellectual debate. And that creep As you said, sometimes the main thrust of the university, of the academy, might have very little to do with a particular belief that a philosopher holds and then gets cancelled en masse for all of their beliefs. It might have very little to do with it, but if there's some connection, it seems like politics is creeping in. So you can start to, as you said, tell a story. You can tell a story about how this view is related somehow to being left or right. And once you do that, well, then that view is now earmarked. And if you hold the wrong position on that view, you could be canceled or revered through cancellation or whatever it is. But it seems like there's now very little room for earnest debate. So one thing I would say is that uh, the question of which beliefs are political, very difficult one. I mean, nobody agrees on what, which things are political and nobody agrees on which things are beliefs. So it's very difficult to get people to agree on which things are political beliefs. But So that's one area that I've researched. And 
one conclusion I've come to is that basically any belief can be political depending on which things are currently kind of socially up for controversy and what the upshot of them are in collective action. The other thing I would say is that we're talking about the emotionality and the rationality and how these sometimes conflict with one another. This is something that there's a little bit of a, a literature cropping up on in the literature on rational and irrational polarization. So if you look at the books about polarization by somebody like Cass Sunstein, it's basically taken for granted, kind of just like the, like the whole heuristics and biases moment that I've been talking about. It's taken for granted that you look at these experiments of how people sometimes polarize in groups, what he calls these enclave effects, and it just is irrational, right? It must be irrational. It looks irrational. And so the conclusion is just like the polarization that we see in American society or with you across the globe, probably similar kinds of polarization at the moment must be that people are doing something irrational. Some philosophers are starting to, to question this. Regina Rini has a paper about it. Kevin Dorst has a whole project called Reasonably Polarized. And so there are some challenges to the idea that polarization is irrational and that, that we get worse at forming beliefs from the perspective of rationality when there's this partisanship involved. There's this great paper on just the fact that polarization can mean different things, right? So there's, it's actually not a transparent term at all. When sometimes when people say polarization, what they mean is beliefs cluster together more. Right in the past, one person would believe A and not B. Another person would believe B and not A. Now it's like there's a whole lot of people who all believe the same thing across a number of issues. There's less mismatch. We can also mean sometimes that there are fewer people who are at a kind of middle belief. If you think of the, you might think like all guns should be banned or no guns should be banned. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff and a bunch of beliefs you could have in the middle. So some one thing that polarization can sometimes mean is fewer people hold those views in the middle. More people have the views that are kind of until more radical action. And there's like seven more things that polarization can mean. So all of those things, there's kind of separate questions about to what extent could it be rational for somebody to do these things? I was very attracted. You can probably tell by now that like, for me, one of my starting points is always don't assume that people are idiots. Don't assume that people are rational, right? Don't assume that the expert that the experts are rational or smart, right? Just you have to assess the way normal psychology works and the way elite psychology works kind of from point blank, you shouldn't make assumptions about which one is good and bad. There is one set of studies that I think is very difficult for the people who think polarization might be rational. And it's these studies that show that people get worse at math when the math seems to be involved in a political issue. So I forget exactly what the example was, but it was some statistical probabilistic thing um, where they had the same math problem. It's like a word problem where you can just switch out the words. And in one case, it was about something apolitical. And in another case, it was about something political, maybe gun control or something. I'm not remember. I don't remember who did the study where it was published. I should, if I'm going to make this argument, but what they saw was when the content of the problem was not political, of course, people still made mistakes because people aren't that great at math, but the mistakes were kind of randomly distributed. And when the content was made political, they also asked people their political affiliation. The mistakes seemed to be less randomly distributed. The mistakes seemed to be in one case, just, and again, it, it wasn't like they told them these things actually happen. They were just given this word problem and people seemed to have this kind of allergic reaction to saying something that would be inconvenient for their political views, even just as the answer to a mathematical problem. So that particular result, and I've emailed Kevin Dorst a bit about it, who has this reasonably polarized blog, which I recommend to anybody. It's formal social epistemology. It's very interesting stuff. I recommend to anybody who's listening to check it out. But that particular result, 
I don't really see what the solution is supposed to be. I don't really see what the way around it is going to be. I, so I think it probably is the case that at least some of our political cognition is pretty irrational. And it does seem to me, and I actually, Jason, I like the way you put it. To me, it's not exactly the case that our political cognition is becoming less rational. I think what is the case is that the rest of our cognition is becoming more political. Um, so whatever the particular irrationalities of political cognition are, they now influence the way we think about any number of issues. And this happens all across philosophy in particular. There is a set of papers that try to take what they call an ameliorative approach to concepts in epistemology. So it's basically like what it means by ameliorative is, so which idea of justification would best serve oppressed people? So now suddenly you go back into all these abstruse debates about justification, internalism, externalism, that sort of thing from the 70s and 80s. And suddenly those are, they seem like the most tweed, abstract things, the most ivory tower sorts of things. Suddenly those are political as well. If there are some problems with political cognition, now those problems are going to be part of this literature as well. They're going to infect kind of the way people work in this literature as well. So to me, both of these issues that we've been kind of circling around, they're worse in tandem, right? The combination of making institutions a little bit less open and in convincing institutions that a lot of the issues they're dealing with are political, that I think is a really bad combination. Um, you can have an open institution saying things are political, and just, this is what the people at Heterodox Academy do, where I'm a writing fellow. We just say, just make sure you've got a bunch of people of different political stripes. That's how, that's the way to make sure you've got the right robust kind of process. Or you can have a closed system if it's something like, look, we can't, we're physicists, right? We can't have a bunch of people coming in here with their wacko physics theories. We need to make sure that you study physics for 10 years before you're contributing to our literatures. Both of those kind of make sense. But when you combine the closed nature with the politicized nature, I think probably you just end up with institutions that are doing a worse job than we're used to them doing. And I do think it's not as though your average like person who's skeptical of COVID vaccines is thinking about all these dynamics, but I do think there's some kind of contribution in the background where our institutions are doing a bit worse and that is responsible for some of these consequences. So the dilemma that people are often faced with is this deluge of information. And so they're going to see conflicting yeah. studies from different kinds of experts in areas where they themselves have no training. And they're trying to work out which one of these things should I believe? And I think a useful shorthand might have been, what are this person's credentials? So, okay, this person is a professor or this person went to MIT or Yale. Uh, okay, well, that's a good reason to believe them. But then you have an expert who says something completely different that's also equally credentialed. And I wonder, is there a good methodology that we can use to determine which experts to believe or that we're more likely to kind of find out what's true through some kind of system where we can say, look, we're, we should be more likely to discount views that come from these kinds of places and more likely to believe views that come from these kinds of places? Yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, my impression is that the answer is no. Uh, so this is called the novice to expert problem. Alvin Goldman has an old paper from the nineties, one of the kind of early papers in this part of social epistemology called experts, which one should we trust? And he lays out five criteria, including things like degrees, official credentials, by which we can judge experts against each other. One problem is we, we might not be good at judging these, 
those criteria as non-experts. So one of the things we think about is like how informed about the topic does somebody, but actually if you're not an expert, it's really difficult to figure out which type of information is the right sort of information. There's tons of people who, if I'm up in like a philosophy off with them, they're going to be rattling off like, well, Hegel said this, Deleuze said that, that sort of thing. And I'm going to be like, well, I can tell you what's in the last 20 issues of Philosophical Review. And I might, to somebody who's watching, I might seem like less of an expert based on that, but I'm not because you don't need to read the loose. That's my view. So that's one problem. As a non-expert, you just might not be, you might need to be an expert to deploy some of the criteria. Another problem is we get expert disagreement, even like you said, with people with similar criteria, right? Who people who have similar debating skills, people who have similar credentials, people who have similar track records. That's another good one. But track records, I think are really important. That's why what I said about, that's why COVID was so bad because really the most important way you judge if anybody's an expert is just like, how often do they get things right and wrong? How reliable are they? And so you just basically, you never want to be seen getting things wrong. And a funny thing is there are, this was a big thing around, like I said, the 2016 election as well, because there were basically, there was nobody who, who was like, oh, I lost my job as a pundit because I had no idea what was actually going on in the election that I spent all my time thinking and writing about. Nobody lost their job because all their predictions were wrong. They kept trying to predict other things. So you might have this worry that, like we said, these are not, these institutions don't have the right kind of incentives. And yeah, so that was two problems. Yeah, I guess the third problem is just, well, I started with this distinction, right, between the epistemic authority and the social authority. And a lot of the criteria we have for judging, okay, these people both claim to be experts, which one is the actual epistemic authority? A lot of the criteria are just these markers of social authority. And if we're worried that the socially credentialed experts are becoming less reliable, then we're not going to be able to use those criteria anymore. So I think there's just a lot of difficulty. I think the rubber hits the road with things that really matter to people. One funny thing about politics is that people are always arguing about it, but it's never clear exactly how much it matters to people. Sometimes it seems like some sort of a rhetorical game or a status game or something like that. What's something that really matters to people? Like my teeth really matter to me. I had to get a root canal last spring and a bunch of cavities because I just let everything go during COVID. And well, why did I keep going to them? Well, they did one thing and it seemed to improve things. They did another thing and it seemed to improve things. They had five stars on Yelp. I read through the reviews. They looked like they were from distinct people who had all had a good experience. So all these things play in. And I think that probably people are the most rational and the most reliable with things that actually matter to them, right? In their day-to-day -day life, how making sure that they have ways to get to work, making sure that their health is okay and things like that, which makes some of the COVID stuff all the more worrying because we would expect people to really be rational with this stuff. And it means that there's a real concern about the trustworthiness of our institutions. So a friend of mine's uh, just finished a PhD in molecular biology at the Max Planck Institute. And mm -hmm. I said to her, I've just watched an interview with someone who's at Max Planck and he's hella skeptical about COVID. He's like, this thing is bogus. This is, the vaccines are dangerous. And I said, guys got like, you know, a PhD from this very world-class institution. I, I guess I need to take this seriously. She says to me, look, you studied humanities. You were aware of the kooky people floating around English departments and sociology departments who held these bizarre views. And you kind of knew like, yeah, yeah, but no one else really takes them seriously. And the nature of the humanities is the way to kind of get a job is you hold an outlandish position. That's exactly how it works in the sciences too. We like having some kooks around. It doesn't mean that you should trust them. The other thing that you sort of find is that you have people who are like very well credentialed from great institutions, but not in the thing they're talking about. So 
you've got people with a PhD in computer science telling you about vaccines. Like, yeah. okay, maybe you're an excellent computer scientist, but why should I trust your view on vaccines? You sort of have this funny washing that goes on where because journals have a, sev- a level of prestige, you say, well, let's create our own journal as a mouthpiece so we can get out our propaganda under that title. Yeah. And people will believe us and we can sort of bootstrap our way towards people trusting us. And as you point out, the difficulty is that the kind of indicators that we could trust, in other words, there was probably a quite good overlap between the social trust. This guy's on TV. He seems to know what he's talking about. He speaks very confidently. He went to Yale. That probably is a really good proxy for this guy actually knows the stuff. Those things are coming apart. And as you point out with the polarization, when you have Fox News and CNN having different experts saying very different things, quite possibly for different political motivations, it then seems like we just don't know who to trust. And so then you say, well, these guys seem to share some of the beliefs that I share, which let's say are political beliefs. So I guess they're getting it right on all the other stuff. So because they share my economic views, I guess I should trust their environmental views. And so you wind up in a situation where instead of interrogating the underlying thing, you just say, well, this news source seems good enough to me, or I feel like these guys are the guys to trust. There might be some sense in which polarization is a good thing. What you have is a place which was generating true knowledge and then becomes corrupted. And so then you have to have something else that develops in an enclave without those sorts of corrupting elements. And so it looks like you've got two polar extremes, but the one is it's a necessary move away from the kind of corrupt system. Uh, I mean, you sort of see this in some senses with mainstream media and alternative media. And alternative media is obviously going to be full of lots of kooks and lots of people saying crazy stuff. But also there's lots of very polite interrogating conversations with people that kind of aren't going to get booked by CNN or they're only going to get booked for five minutes. And there's only so much you can say in five minutes versus going on Joe Rogan and being able to kind of explore your idea for three hours. And so you have this separate enclave that people then start to trust because they say, well, you know what, I've watched through experience that you seem to kind of track truth in a way that this other format isn't, and you kind of have this new expertise develop. So I want to propose a a solution to this problem. So you've got the CNN experts, right, on vaccines, and you've got the Fox experts on vaccines, but it seems like that suggests that they're there's an equal number of scientists that would be happy to appear on Fox and happy to appear on CNN. And that's probably false. So it's probably the case that the experts that appear on CNN are representing about 95% mm-hmm. of scientific views. And the experts who appear on Fox would only represent a very small percentage of scientists. What if the solution to this problem is very simple? It's that you look at scientific consensus, and that's not a guarantee of truth but it's a prima facie reason for believing it. So in other words, the burden of proof is on the Fox News experts, not on the CNN experts. And in the absence of some compelling reasons for disbelieving the CNN experts, you should believe them. I want to say that this is a good heuristic, despite the fact that anybody who's taken classes where you studied skepticism might be a little bit tired of burden-shifting arguments and epistemology. So the burden shifting nature of the argument makes it a little bit unsatisfying to me. But in general, I think this is a good heuristic. The only things I would say, there are things that you just, again, if you have the time and the kind of mental acuity, there are things that you would want to check on. So there's a debate in epistemology, a debate that I think shouldn't be a debate. This is something where I think there's a clear right answer. When do numbers matter? I think actually it might be the title of a paper by Jennifer Lackey. So 
most people, Lackey disagrees, but I think she's just wrong. Most people think that the time when numbers matter is when people form their views independently. So one example of when this doesn't happen, which is also cited in the conspiracy theory literature, is when there's a belief cascade. Belief cascade is one person starts believing something and other people, somebody else copies them for whatever reason. And this leads to just everybody having the same belief, but it's really only one person's input, really only one person determined that everybody would have this belief. Now, of course, it's not always clear you can't really say the other people had zero input because you have to imagine if the belief was crazy enough, then it wouldn't so smoothly cascade through all the people. So it's not like it's zero input, but you can't always completely trust numbers. You might think that even a small number of people thinking independently can do better than a massive group of people. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe in academia as an institution to begin with. It is the fact that academia is a little kooky and has people who are really thinking independently that makes us think it's robust. And this is independence is an assumption of Condorcet's jury theorem, which is the kind of central result. It's hundreds of years old now, but it's the central result behind epistemic democracy, which is the idea that majority vote will do better on determining the truth than, than any individual. You have to have the people, the voters being independent from each other to generate that result. So that's one thing that you have to... In, in some cases, the numbers won't matter because of kind of the background processes and the background incentives that we were talking about. The other thing I want to say, maybe this is just another example of the first thing, but there are not, I think, in like the term scientists as a whole, not with COVID, not with global warming, but there are cases in which there are kind of gatekeeping issues where the question of who even gets the social credential to be begin with is kind of conditioned upon taking a certain view. So I saw this a little bit in some of the philosophy of gender debates where one person says, well, here are the experts. They're the, the experts are the people who have published on this issue. And then you realize like, well, you sort of have to have a certain view to begin with to be able to publish in one of the good journals on this issue. So if there's, at least that's my impression, I don't want to, I haven't tried. I don't think very often about philosophy of gender. I only think about the debate around philosophy of gender. But if that sort of dynamic is present, that to be called an expert requires taking a view on this specific controversy, then you might think that I can't just listen to the numbers on this controversy because I want them to be experts kind of in general and then see what they think when that is applied to this controversy. Otherwise, you just end up with a situation where it's like, well, people who take a certain view on this controversy take a certain view on this controversy. So there, you always do have lingering concerns of how, not a group, but those don't exist, but how, how did these people get this credential? How was this category decided upon? How is it determined who has this property who has, who's in this category. I don't want to say group. And what are the internal incentives? What are the internal structures in this group? Uh, I'm starting to see the problems that all of my friends have in discussion with me now. No, it's okay. It's good. It's good. And like I said, you probably have paraphrase schema that, that make it go through smooth. I don't actually. So I'm going to Oh, yeah. You're, you're a true eliminativist. That is, yeah, so okay. I'm not that an individualist. Is, I'm, I'm an eliminativist. Yeah. You're an eliminativist. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Let's enter it. So we could have called this episode two and a half Jews. And so I want to kind of conclude with a story from the Talmud. So there's this idea that you have 70 judges, the Sanhedrin, who would decide whether someone was guilty of a crime. And if someone was accused of a crime, 
if the majority of the judges found that you had you know, committed the crime, then you would be sentenced accordingly. Unless all of them found that you had done it, in which case you were acquitted. And this strikes us as strange. We think, but surely it must be best if all 70 of them found you guilty. But it's exactly what you've said, which is that it's so unlikely that you wouldn't have noise in the system, that you wouldn't have one person dissenting or making a mistake, that probably what has gone on is that you've had one powerful personality using some improper means to convince or force everyone else to come to the same mm -hmm. position. And you therefore have reason to be skeptical. And so I think, as you said, it's a useful heuristic to think what do most the experts think, and that's generally good unless we think there is enormous political pressure on most experts to come up with a certain kind of answer. And if they don't come up with that answer, they will be punished. And therefore we might think we really ought not to go with the majority opinion on this because the system is tainted.